You are now listening to the June 27th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. The last time you may recall how David improperly took Uriah's wife Bathsheba to be his wife. God told David, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Today, we'll look at 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 15. Verse 6. Starting with 2 Samuel chapter 13, God's word that the sword shall never depart from David's house would be fulfilled. The first sign of that appeared in the conflict between two of David's sons. You may remember, while David was still a young man, how he had won Michael's hand in marriage by satisfying Saul's demands. Later, David took additional wives from Hebron and Jerusalem and had many children. Among them was a son named Amnon, born from the second wife, Ahinoam. This son of David fell in love with a girl named Tamar. It would have been normal for a boy to fall in love with a girl, except Tamar was also David's daughter, born of his fourth wife. Even though they had different mothers, they were siblings. This type of love interest was considered incestuous and not permitted. One day, Amnon ran into his friend Jonadab. Jonadab was the son of David's brother, Shemaiah. Amnon confided in Jonadab that he loved Tamar and he did not know what to do. Together, the two boys came up with a cunning plan. If Amnon pretended to be sick and lay in bed, his father would come visit him. Then... From his sick bed, he would plead his father David to have Tamar come to tend to his illness by baking bread that he could eat and gain strength. It must have seemed like an innocent request, so David granted it. Tamar came to Amnon and made bread. She gave it to Amnon to eat, but he would not eat it. Instead, he told everyone to leave the room except Tamar. When everyone had left... Amnon forced Tamar to lie with him. Tamar said it was a foolish thing to do and tried to free herself from his grip, but Amnon was strong and eventually violated her. Then surprisingly, he changed his attitude toward her and acted cold. He told her to go away. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her garment. She covered her face with her hands in shame and ran to her brother Absalom's house. What Amnon did was a crime, punishable by death according to the law of Israel. However, David did not punish Amnon. David was probably thinking that this family tragedy happened because of his sin involving Bathsheba. While Tamar was staying at her brother Absalom's house, Absalom was sad and angry for his sister. He devised a plan for revenge. He waited two years after the incident. Absalom then made his move. 
He invited King David and all the princes to a party in Ephraim to celebrate sheep shearing. At that time, a sheep shearing festival was a regional event where one would invite the neighboring people to eat and be merry. They would enjoy together the bounty from the shearing and sale of sheep's wool. King David declined the invitation, saying he would just be a burden. Without David at the celebration, Absalom was now in a good position to avenge Ammon for what he had done to his sister Tamar. Absalom proceeded to make a request to David to allow Amnon to join the celebration. David told Amnon and all the princes to accept Absalom's invitation. Now the plot thickened. As they were getting ready for the sheep shearing celebration, Absalom instructed his servants to prepare to kill Amnon. The celebration commenced, and all the princes were drinking and enjoying themselves. And yes, Amnon was among them. It had been two years since the incident, and he didn't suspect anything. He got drunk. When all the princes were in a state of stupor, Absalom gave the order to his servants to move in to kill Amnon and he was killed. You see now how one tragedy begot another tragedy for King David. But sadly for David, it actually gets worse. After the killing, fearing retribution, Absalom ran away to Geshur, where his maternal grandfather was king. Absalom stayed in Geshur for three years. After losing his son Amnon, David mourned for him. Most likely, he mourned over the death of a son and seeing another son, Absalom, turning into a fugitive. King David might have recalled his years as a fugitive on the run from King Saul. After three years had gone by, David's heart softened toward Absalom, and he began to miss him. General Joab was part of David's inner circle, and he sensed David missed his son, Absalom. He decided to intervene and help David bring his son back to the palace. Joab recruited a wise woman from Tekoa to speak with David. His plan was to help David see the situation through the eyes of another person. Joab brought the woman to David and introduced her as someone that had been grieving over the loss of her son. She stood before David and began acting out as Joab had instructed her. She said, I am a poor widow. I had two sons, but the two of them got into a fight in the field, and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole family has risen up against me. They are telling me to hand over the one who struck his brother, that they may put him to death for the life of his brother, whom he has killed. They are threatening to take away my son, who is the only remaining heir. After hearing the woman... David promised her that no one would be allowed to kill the son. The woman, who received this merciful ruling from David, then turned the table around and put David in her shoes. She continued, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring back his banished one. For we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one 
will not be cast out from him. Save him from the hands of people who are trying to cut off Israel, which is God's inheritance. David heard the woman's plea and understood what she was implying. He accepted General Joab's advice. David told Joab to bring Absalom back. Absalom returned to Jerusalem from Geshur, but things were not the same for him. For one, he was not able to meet his father. Even though he longed to see Absalom, David could not simply ignore what happened at the sheep-shearing celebration. King David didn't allow Absalom to come greet him. That lasted several years. From Absalom's perspective, he needed to get an audience with King David to be made whole again. The longer he had to live with a cloud hanging over his head. So Absalom turned to Joab for help, but he could not get in touch with him. Perhaps Joab was intentionally avoiding Absalom, knowing how sensitive the situation was. Out of desperation, Absalom set a fire on Joab's barley field to force Joab to come see him. When angry Joab came to see Absalom for burning up his barley field, Absalom confronted Joab. Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me see the king's face, and if he finds me guilty, let him put me to death. So Joab consented to speak with David. David in turn learned of Absalom's plea and called him in. Absalom finally met his father, David, after five years. Now what do you think? Do you think David and Absalom made up and lived happily ever after? Well, not exactly. David was gracious towards Absalom by bringing him back from his exile and granting him an audience. However, Absalom did not reciprocate his father's graciousness. He, in fact, planned a conspiracy against his father. Absalom was handsome and the people liked him. Yes, he killed Amnon, but he did it for the despicable act Amnon had committed against his sister Tamar. The people had pity for Absalom for having been neglected by his father, King David, for five years. Maybe Absalom, too, felt neglected by his father and held a grudge against him. Absalom began preparing quite methodically to assert his position in Israel. Were he to be successful, he could take away the kingship from his father. Absalom prepared chariots and horses for himself. He gathered 50 men as runners and steadily built up his military power. He also made moves to win the hearts of the people. In the morning, he would wake up early and would go to the city gate. At that time, the gate of Jerusalem was the center of administrative and economic activities. It was where the king would hold his court to hear cases and render judgments. Absalom stood in front of the gate before David arrived and met the people and heard their cases. He also dropped subtle hints of discontent against King David that people could identify with. He captivated the hearts of the people by instilling an impression of how he would be a fair and more competent judge. When a man bowed down to him, Absalom would extend his hand to raise that person up and kissed him on his cheek. On surface, his demeanors appeared gracious and kind, but underneath the surface, 
he was planning something very sinister. You see, the behaviors he engaged in at the city gate are those reserved only for the king. He was coveting the kingship that his father was currently holding. How will Absalom's conspiracy develop? Will he be successful in his rebellion against his father? We'll continue on with our story next time as we continue our series from Story of Kings. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is lamenting when the mighty have fallen. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. 1 Samuel 16. But as he tasted it, there's a bitterness to it. We're going to look at that today. Now, if you're writing notes down, this is a good thing to write, our big idea. We're going to see that all of us need a righteous king who gives us hope in the face of death. Now, first, notice an Amalekite reports the death of Saul and Jonathan in verses 1 to 10. We have a report that is coming through this Amalekite about the death of Saul and Jonathan. Now, you'll remember that David's at this point been living with the Philistines, and he almost joined them in battle against Saul and Israel when Philistines were attacking Israel. That's how convinced the Philistines were that Israel, or David rather, was on their side. But when David shows up, the Philistines said, you know, this just doesn't seem smart. David is the one of whom our women have sung has killed tens of thousands of us. It's probably not a good idea to take him into battle with us. He might turn on us. And so as he's returning on a three-day journey back to Ziklag in Philistine territory, he shows up, and you'll remember that the Amalekites had raided his home while he was away, taken away his wives and all of their wives and children and all of their goods and possessions. And so David has chased them down to retrieve all that they have lost. All of this while Israel is fighting the Philistine. And this count shows that David is greater than Saul. So as we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 1, this author, as he is writing about David, wants us to see how David is a greater king, a greater Messiah than Saul was. So look with me in our 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. Here's what the word of the Lord says. 2 Samuel 1, beginning of verse 1. After the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp and his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called out to me and said, And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. David's men are likely celebrating because they have just defeated the Amalekites. And they've come back, and they are resting as they are awaiting news about what's happened with the Philistines and Israel. Now, if you've been reading through 1 Samuel, this episode is compelling for a number of reasons. You'll remember that Saul lost his throne for not wiping out the wicked Amalekites in obedience to the commandment of Yahweh back in 1 Samuel 15. You'll remember that back in Exodus, God told Moses that he would be against the Amalekites forever and that he would blot them out. 
because they were famous not only for hating God, but for hating God's people. So the irony of an Amalekite announcing the death of Saul is thick. Do you see it? This king who is meant to hold the law in one hand and rule with authority in the other, the people of God, and show them what it looked like to be obedient to the word of God. He was meant to be the physical representation and manifestation of the rule of God on earth. And here he is dying with a a sign, a road sign, pointing back, highlighting his disobedience. His disobedience led to death. Can't miss the irony. Add to that that David, David has just returned from striking down the what? Amalekites who raided his home, fulfilling what Saul failed to do. Do you see it? This author is wanting us to see David is the king. He's the real deal. He obeys God. He fulfills the commandments of God as he is going along. I mean, David wasn't even necessarily seeking to kill Amalekites on that day, but they raided him, and so he said, well, I'll do the will of God and I'll fulfill it. David didn't lose a man, but Saul lost all of his sons and his warriors, and the Philistines, even you find in the text, took their homes. Quite the opposite of David's experience with his men. See, the author buries the lead and doesn't reveal this guy's identity. You'll notice he doesn't tell David who he is, and we don't see who this man is until verse 8. And there we see the Amalekite also gives a funky report of the death of Saul. Do you see how it's kind of funky? If you've read 1 Samuel 31, then you see it. It doesn't quite match up. I mean, it's close, but it's just not the same. You'll remember that he just said that he happened upon Saul who was leaning on his spear in the middle of a battle. How do you happen upon the king of Israel who's just leaning on his spear in the middle of a battle as chariots are coming at you? That doesn't seem like the kind of accident any of us want happening to us. No, I don't think that it just happened. I mean, oops. And then Saul asked him to kill him. So the Malachite says, I mercifully finished him off and brought the crown and armband as proof to you. Now you'll remember in 1 Samuel 31, if you've read through, in that version, the true version, he told the armor bearer to kill him because Saul was scared of what the Philistines would do to him if they caught him. But the armor bearer, remember, he refused in verse 4 because he feared killing the Lord's anointed. That armor bearer understood who Saul was. He was God's king. He might have been unfaithful and unrighteous, but it was not his prerogative. It was not his position to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So Saul killed himself in 1 Samuel 31, and then the armor bearer killed himself. Now some, if you read through this, are going to claim that the Amalekite tells the the truth offering another perspective. Here's a, a detail that was missed in that account But most commentators agree that this guy is bending the truth for selfish gain. And I take that to be what's happening here. He's assuming David would reward him. I mean, think about it. Saul probably would have rewarded any man who killed David. He's gotten used to a Saul kind of rule where Saul is looking for those who are for him. Saul is not looking to God. He's looking at necromancers and and others rather than looking to God himself in prayer. This is not a godly king, and so he's gotten used to kings like the kings of the nations. Kings who are always looking for what's in it for them. He's assuming that David is like those kings. Everybody knew Saul treated David as an enemy. I mean, David was always running from Saul. Saul was always trying to kill David. 
And I'm guessing that he found Saul's body with the crown and armlet as the enemy was closing in. And he began in that moment creating a half-truth to gain reward, expecting that King David would give him position, money, and who knows what else. How do you think you would react in this situation? I mean, just think about this. You're King David, and you're hearing the report, an anointed king of Israel who has been trying to kill you from day one. How would you react if you knew that someone who made your life miserable, who made you literally try to take your life, take your wife, and run you away from your home, if you found out that he had died, how would you treat him? How do you treat your enemies? And what if your enemy was also the king of God's people and your king? And I think that we're supposed to be surprised by the righteous King David's response to the death of Saul. In the rest of the text, we find three responses David has to this death, and and I think they're meant to startle us in some way and give us a picture into the righteousness of King David. So notice three responses. First, this is the first, and all of these, I think, are shocking and would have been shocking to this man, this Amalekite. First, notice the righteous king grieves in verses 11 to 12. Did you see that? Now, I'm not sure this is the response the Amalekite expected, but catch what David does as soon as he gets the news in these two verses. Verses 11 to 12, here's what he says. It says, Then David, hold of his clothes, and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept, fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now, grief and lament, they are different, and we see both in these texts. See, grief is David's immediate response in the wake of the unexpected news of death. He and his people, they tore their clothes, they mourned, they wept, they fasted over the death of King Saul, his son Jonathan, and the people of the house of Israel who had fallen by the sword. And this displays and demonstrates that David took no pleasure in the deaths of God's anointed King Saul. Jonathan's death, or God's covenant people who died at the hands of the uncircumcised Philistines. I think an important note, these are not the covenant people of God, and that is highlighted here in the text. These are people who mocked Yahweh and his king, and it is grievous to David. Yes, there's a sense in which he senses what God is doing, placing him on his throne, but he is grieving in the moment the brokenness of the world, and isn't grief complicated? I mean, I'm sure that David, as he is grieving the loss of each of these three different entities. He is grieving in different ways. He is grieving this king who has attacked him and tried to take his life, the one who was his father-in-law and yet the one who was trying to kill him. There's a certain sense of grief that's going on there. And then you have the grief that is around this Jonathan, this man that he loved, who is his friend. And then the people of Israel, God's covenant people, the people who he would rule and reign over. And here we find this great king and warrior who has a heart that bleeds over death. Did you notice that David grieved the loss of each one of these three in different ways? But his response shows his love for God and God's people. He is bleeding over the death that has happened. The tearing of clothes signaled a shock and a horror. That's how they did it in the ancient Near East. They wanted to to show how shocked and horrified they were by the broken of this world breaking into their lives. They would have ripped their clothes. They would have shown how horrible this thing is in the face of tragedy. And this shows that David took no part or pleasure in the death of King Saul, God's anointed. Now, grief is natural. It's a visceral response of David to death and the dishonor to God and his people. 
And I think that we have a lesson here about the goodness of this king. He's not a king who overlooks the grief, but he steps into the grief with his people. That's a good Christ. That's a good king that doesn't leave us to our sufferings, but willingly steps into it with us. And that's what David does. He comes in and he joins his people in this suffering. He acknowledges it, gives voice to it. I think one of the best ways to help those who are grieving us is to simply come alongside them and be present, to listen and to provide for their physical needs, to love the whole person. You know, that's the way that you do it. And, and you think about in grief, who is it that's been most centrally affected by this? And the best thing to do if you're wondering how to help them is just to sit down and listen to them. Sometimes the people that are experiencing it know best how their hearts can be ministered to. And I think that real grief means that we walk and look different after a tragedy than before we did. Did you hear that? I think real grief means that we actually walk differently afterwards. Here's what I mean. You'll notice that ripping of clothes in David's day, it would have been a costly affair. In fact, the priests were not allowed to rip their garments because they were holy in the presence of God and those were special garments, but it was a costly affair. And David looks so much like Jesus here who wept over Jerusalem for the coming judgment in Luke 19.41. Wept over the coming judgment. He grieved over the bad that was to come to those who were not in covenant with him. And Jesus was the man of sorrows who left infinite joy and stooped down and entered into the grief with us. In fact, Isaiah 53 calls him the man of sorrow who is well acquainted with grief. That is the Savior that we have, the greater Messiah that has come for us. But there's something more here than that. Not only should we mature and have a better understanding of the value of life and how to love others better in the wake of grief, it should be something that educates our living and loving and sacrificing. But even more than that, Joel picks this up in 2, 12 to 13, and he says, catch this, there really is a strong combination between the way that we view sin in our lives and death. Now, you remember that tearing of clothes was something you did when you were confronted by death. It's a way that you showed shock and horror over just how devastating death was. Well, Joel picks up on this in his prophecy, and he says that Joel 2, 12 to 13 says this, God is speaking to his people who have sinned against him and fallen away from him, and he says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. This is all language of like a funeral. And he says, catch this, rend your hearts, tear your hearts, and not your garments. Do you see that? Kind of horror and terror that you should have in the wake of tragedy and death should be similar to the kind of tragedy that you should sense over our sins against a holy and righteous God. And here's the question. I'm just wondering this morning if we grieve over what we should. Not just do we grieve how we should, but do we grieve over what we should. Just catch this. Joel and Paul say that we should sin, we should grieve sin, and we should do it in a godly way. There is an ungodly way to grieve. Paul picks up on that when he's speaking and writing to the church in 2 Corinthians 7. And in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says this, Godly grief produces a repentance, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It is life-giving, godly grief. Whereas worldly grief, a hopeless grief that does not have an eye towards God and his salvation and his Christ, that kind of ungodly grief, this is what he says, he says, that is a worldly grief and it produces death. There is a, a way to grieve that brings life and a way to grieve, to grieve that brings death. But notice two things about Jesus' grief. First, Jesus didn't avoid our grief. He entered into it with us to help us in the flesh bodily. What a good king. 
Love that Jesus didn't just stay up in heaven and sort of mail in his help for us. He's the kind of king that comes and enters in and, and takes on and body, flesh, and, and person, and holds us and helps us. But second, did you know that King Jesus wept over unrepentant sinners? That's what caused Jesus to weep. He knew that the reason for the death was the sin, and so he wept over the cause, just like he wept over the result. So are we grieving like Jesus? Do we grieve our apathy about the gospel? Man, I have to pray my heart up to get excited like it ought to be about the gospel. Is anybody else like that? Have you noticed that you throttle at not being excited about the gospel like you ought to? That that's something that you have to work on every day. And not just like in the morning. I can get excited about the gospel and by breakfast, I can all of a sudden find my heart growing cold. Anybody ever experienced that? Because we are broken and we need the Spirit's help. We need to be dependent desperately on God. Do we grieve that? Do we grieve marriages that lack a zeal for God and each other? Do we grieve that? Is it a grief that drives us to repentance? Or are we just learning to deal with the present state of affairs as if that's okay? Do we grieve lost children, friends, and coworkers? Are we lax in our prayer lives? Are we comfortable in our addictions to alcohol, porn, and sex? Are those things just okay? Or do they drive us towards a godly kind of grief that says, God, I need your help because this is sin that leads to death. Are we grieving in a life-giving way or a worldly way that only produces more death? Well, notice second, the righteous king executes justice. Something we should be aware of. A righteous king, if he is going to remain just, must hand out just verdicts. You know, that's why that Jesus had to come to die. He had to die in our place. Why? So that he could be just in the justifier. A righteous king must ask justly. He's no longer just. And if he's not just, he's not good. Catch what David's response is, his second response. And I'm pretty sure this too is not exactly what the Malachite expected as he was making that two-day journey back to David with all of Saul's regal wares. Notice what he says in verses 13 to 16. He says this. God's word says, And David said to the young man, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, how is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. David said to him, your blood be on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You'll notice here that David has asked him two questions. The first, where he's from. He's just said that he's an Amalekite, but now he's asking him, okay, tell me, like, where's your hometown? And he says he's a sojourner and an Amalekite. Well, this narrows the field. This means that he's living in Israel. He is not a covenant member of the people of Israel, but he is one who is living in their land and under their rules. He does not worship Yahweh, but he is living under the rule of Yahweh. He is a second generation sojourner. So he's been there long enough to know the way that the law should be upheld and understood. Of course, we also know that David just returned from killing Amalekites who were raiding his people. This man does not know that. Ironic twist to his lie, he didn't know the current state of affairs. Not a great thing to be coming to David on this day. We also know that God rejected Saul for refusing to wipe out the Amalekites as God ordered. Of course, the Amalekite was expecting the next question, I think in this moment, the second question to be, and how much reward do you think you deserve? I bet he's just thinking like, man, I mean, what's he going to give me? Like a car, a new camel, I don't know, something really cool. Maybe even a wife, I don't know. But instead, David asked this question, and it's actually a statement. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? I'm sure the Amalekite didn't know about David back in Israel. He had heard maybe their version of who David was. Yeah, he's one of the Philistines. 
He's a raider. He's a bandit. He doesn't love God. He's not a good guy. He wants to use and manipulate things. But David is a different kind of king than Saul. And the kings of the nations who operated on the basis of what they could get out of it, this was not that kind of king. You remember Saul and the kind of king that this Amalekite was used to. He's the guy that killed 85 priests and all the men, women, and children of Nob simply because he suspected that they were aiding and abetting one of David's escapes. This isn't a good God. This isn't a righteous king. And that's probably the kind of king that the Amalekite was expecting that he was dealing with. He must have heard how Saul sought to kill David for three decades, and David couldn't have thought kindly about that. He must not have heard, though, about how David spared Saul's life twice. 1 Samuel 24 and 26, and you'll remember the second time when he's talking to Abishai, who is saying, let's kill him and end this now. And he speaks to Abishai and he said, who can raise his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? You don't want the guilt of the Lord on your head, the blood guilt of the Lord on your head. This is the Lord's anointed. It is God's man. It is not our prerogative to take his life. And if anybody had the right to do it, wouldn't it be David who had been anointed the future king of Israel? And yet he says, even I do not have the right to do this. The Lord alone will take care of his king. The Lord enthrones his king. And how different this Malachite looks from Saul's armor bearer. In 1 Samuel 31.4, where Saul asks his armor bearer to kill him as the Philistines are drawing near. Because he says, you don't know what they'll do to me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. He feared God. He feared touching the Lord's anointed. And even though David was anointed the future king of Israel and given the spirit to reign over Israel, even he would not lift a hand against the anointed king Saul. He would trust God to give him the throne if that was God's desire. And even though the Amalekites said Saul asked him to kill him, he should have recognized that that was not Saul's right to ask him to take his life. See, David doesn't seem to realize that this Amalekite is lying and trying to capitalize on the death of Saul. So David has him executed according to Lex Talionis, that law eye for an eye, back in Deuteronomy 19.21. He says this guy has taken blood, and so blood is on his head. That is justice, that is a righteous application of the law. And that's what he does. And that's why he says your blood is on your own head. See, David is not guilty of this murder, but he is carrying out the vengeance of the Lord for Saul's death. He's demonstrating himself to be a righteous king who is keeping the law. Now, we see something really clearly here about the nature of David. He is the righteous king. Even here, he continues to fill out God's commands to take out the Amalekites, just as Yahweh had promised that he would do to Moses in Exodus 17, 14. That's where he said he would blot out the memory of the Amalekites or Amalek from under the heaven because they were ancient enemies of God and his people. And here David is fulfilling the promises of God. In fact, 1 Samuel 28, 18 tells us that Saul said that he would, was told that he would be killed by the Philistines because he failed to obey the voice of the Lord and carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek back in 1 Samuel 15. So Saul was an unrighteous king, but David was a righteous king who obeyed God. Do you see it? He's a different kind of king than the kings of the nations. He is the anointed king of God, the kind of king that you read about in Psalm 2. But we can also learn, I think, something from this Amalekite. He's got a lesson. He doesn't have a name, but he has a lesson for us. So he lied and manipulated a situation for profit, and it led to death. Like, man, this could really be a great time to get a promotion. Well, Hebrews 3.13 warns of the deceitfulness of sin. Hearts that are looking for selfish gain. Dangerous. Sin leads to death. And I wonder if 
on his way back, that two-day journey, I mean, that's a long journey, two days to get to David. And as he's walking, I wonder if all along the way he was calculating, I wonder how much I'm going to get. Or I wonder how much I can get out of this. I'm sure Satan was at work in his heart, enticing him to lie and leverage his story for his benefit. And hey, it wasn't a whole lie. It was just kind of a a half lie or a half truth, right? And he thought he was running towards wealth, but he was running towards death. What lies is Satan convincing you of? You know, I think that they're basically like five lies Satan uses. I'm sure there are others, but five lies he's been using since the Garden of Eden. Five ways he gets into our hearts and he starts to work on us. And maybe you've experienced some of that. Maybe you're experiencing some of that right now. One is God is withholding true joy from you. It's a lie. Or maybe it's the other lie of sin offers better joy than obedience. Now, this is subtle difference, but it's, you know, I think that I could be happier if I sin. And that there's a little more joy. It just seems like sinners have more fun than like non-sinners. People who are trying to follow Christ, it feels like a straitjacket, but it feels like there's a lot of freedom if you don't have like all the rules and stuff. And so if I was just unencumbered by, you know, that whole straitjacket chains of like, you know, being holy and good, like I really could experience greater happiness, Let me just tell you, like, that's a lie from the pit of hell. God tells us that he has created us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He gave his infinite son for us to die for us so that we could be with him and enjoy not just momentary pleasures, but infinite joy forever. And so if you're thinking to yourself that there is some good that God does not want to have you, or that there is better good in sin, here's the reality. Sin always leads to sorrow. You might say, well, how does that work? Because God reigns. He is sovereign over all things. He doesn't say, don't sin because I don't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to sin because sin leads to death. Or what about third, that obedience to God is bondage? Obedience to God is living and flourishing as a human, the way that God has made us. The joy of obedience is small and short-lived. Yeah, I was obedient. I felt good for a second, but then it was hard because obedience was costly. Except what we find in the scriptures is, is that because of the nature of who Christ is and his resurrection from the death, nothing that we do is in vain. Not only that, the gifts and the blessings because of obedience are not just something that are to be enjoyed here in the moment, but forevermore. You see that? The the obedience and the, the righteous fruit that we bear here are treasures stored up in heaven. And then sin does not have consequences. That's the basic one. Sin is the the shiny ball that Satan throws out. And he just says, hey, go have it. It's shiny, it's beautiful, and it doesn't cost anything. Has anybody ever found that to be true? That sin, you ran headlong after it, you caught it, and at the end of the day, you said, this is great, there are no consequences. How many of you have experienced the shame and the guilt and the bondage that has come through actually getting the sin that you desired and finding out the promises were not what they turned out to be? That's exactly what Satan does. He's lying to us. But notice that sin always leads to sad. That's the storyline of the Bible. It always leads to sadness and death. And sin might make you sing for a second. If you love Jesus, you will want to obey him. Why? Because you'll know how good of a king he is. And that the things he calls you to do are for your good, not just today, but forever. That's the nature of God's law. See, that's exactly what we've been called to. Sin is always leading to sorrow under his reign in both this life and the life to come. And everyone will have to give an account for the way that we live. Holiness leads to happiness. Blessed is the righteous man, woman, or child who obeys God when it's hard, trusting and not growing weary in well-doing. You can't cheat God. God cannot be cheated. 
Now, I don't know what it looks like on the last day as far as like how our life is judged by Christ and how that works out. There are different people that, that say different things happen. Some say, well, because of what Christ has done, everybody in the end is rewarded the same. And others say, well, no, you're kind of judged according to your deeds, like what the New Testament seems to say, even as Christians. But 2 Corinthians 5.13 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whatever good or evil. That's a message to Christians. We can't cheat God, and we wouldn't want to. His plans are best for us. Notice his third response. The righteous king teaches his people to lament in verses 17 to 27. Now, this is a specific kind of lament. We have different laments in the Bible. This is an elegy or a kind of funeral dirge that has been written in light of the death of Saul and Jonathan. And you'll notice the, the refrain that begins and ends it and that shows up in the middle, how the mighty have fallen. Not only that, notice as you're looking at these verses that we're about to read, that David actually wants to teach the people of Judah to lament. The righteous king says, it is important that I teach you how to lament. In fact, he puts this in a book, a non-biblical book, that we don't see mentioned anywhere else except for Joshua. This book called the Book of Jashar, or the Book of the Upright, the Book of the Righteous. Now, you can't see this in English, but there's one more thing I want you to look at before we read this text. Look at verse 18. You'll notice that it says, and he said, it should be taught. Now, in the original Hebrew, it actually says, where it says it, the bow should be taught. The bow, like a, a bow that you would shoot an arrow out of. Now, many have tried to figure out what this means and have speculated as to why he calls it the bow. Nobody knows for sure. But I, I think that maybe verses 19 to 27 give us some kind of clue. So let's look at this lament and see if we can understand what's happening. So look with me there again. Here's what he says in verses 19 uh, down to the end. He says this, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the trees of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now, your glory in verse 19, it actually comes from the same word for gazelle. And there might be a kind of wordplay that's going on here. You'll remember that Saul was on a mountain when he was struck by an arrow back in 1 Samuel 31. And it's almost a picture of a glorious, majestic gazelle who's prancing on the mountains where he should be safe and secure when he is struck by an arrow on the mountain of Gilboa. And then Gilboa became famous as the place where Saul fell forevermore. That's how it was known. And you'll remember that a Philistine who shot an arrow from his bow wounded Saul, leading to his death. David remembered how the daughters of Israel had sung to him, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And yet here, he sees decades later, in the light of Saul's death, 
He's devastated by the thought of the daughters of those uncircumcised Philistines rejoicing in Gath and Ashkelon, those cities that that demonstrated all of Philistia. He's just in horror about them actually celebrating not just the victory of their king and their people, but their god, Dagon. And then in verse 21, he curses the mountain of Gilboa with drought. Why? Because the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. I think this here shield that is anointed, anointed is from the word Messiah. And so he's saying that this anointed shield, it it sort of is a, a metaphor or a picture both for the shield that fell that would have been oiled to have like, you know, the, the spears and stuff ricochet off of it, as well as the king who was anointed with the spirit who had the protection of the Lord upon him. This king has fallen. And did you catch who is famed for the use of the bow in verse 22? We know this from elsewhere in 1 Samuel, but who is famous for using the bow? Jonathan. You remember that Jonathan gave David his robe, armor, and even his what? Bow and belt is symbols of his covenant with David back in 1 Samuel 18. He gave him his bow. That was a sticking point with Saul who tried to kill Jonathan with his spear at one point for his faithful love to David, which compromised Jonathan's throne. Saul says, do you really want to like link up with this guy, have a covenant with him when it's going to cost you everything? Now, if you've been tracking, you know, the bow of Jonathan never turned and ran because he was brave in battle and Saul was famed for the sword. Jonathan famed for the bow, Saul here for the sword. Now, if you've been tracking, verse 23 is interesting. The language is elevated. They never divided in life or death. Really? I mean, I remember Jonathan and Saul having an interesting complex relationship, right? Not to mention the time he threw his spear at Jonathan. Doesn't seem like they weren't ever divided in life and death. But the point is, is that all through life, Jonathan stuck with Saul and was faithful to his dad. He was faithful to David and he was faithful to Saul. He was a righteous man. And he was even to the point of death. He died with his father on that mountain. Also, the language is elevated, you'll notice, in the sense that they were remembered as mighty warriors, swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. But there's an important subtlety here. He says this, how the mighty have fallen, verse 25, in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. So now he's focusing on Jonathan. But did you catch what David did? He speaks of Jonathan saying he lies on your high places. But then in verse 26, He speaks to Jonathan as though Jonathan's living. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Catch this. We need people that we can confess to and get help, where we can not be invisible anymore, but be seen. So do you have a Jonathan in your life? If you don't have a Jonathan in life, you need to find a Jonathan in your life. Do you have someone that you would allow behind the, the storefront of your life to see the man or woman behind the curtain who may be so much less impressive than what people think they're looking at? See, hiding is dangerous. Sin loves lurk in the dark and grow. And also mercy through a new and better covenant that comes in Jesus Christ. See, we have a better Christ who hears our cries and laments as well. David prayed to the God who keeps our tears in a bottle in Psalm 56. But Jesus is the Christ who came to wipe away every tear. He is the greater king, the greater Messiah. We are the brokenhearted who had God come from the broken people and the brokenness of this world to save and rescue us because God did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners like you and me. See, I love how Paul speaks of the identity shift of those who have put their faith in Christ. And the only people that come to Christ are those who come broken knowing that they are sinners and they aren't great warriors. They need God's salvation, salvation that only he can bring. Man, if there's none righteous, who's got hope? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So know this, there's a righteous king coming, and we have great hope because we have a greater Savior and a greater Messiah in Jesus. Let's pray. Let the weak say, 
I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Let the blind say I can see. It's what the Lord has done in me. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Do you know that the joy of the Lord is our strength? The Hebrew word for joy is shedva, meaning rejoicing, gladness, and joy. And the Hebrew word for strength is maus, which means a place or means of safety, refuge, protection, or stronghold. This heavenly joy stems from a Christ-centered lifestyle of knowing Jesus and walking with Him daily in His unwavering strength. His joy positions our hearts to worship Him regardless of our current circumstances. Let's lift up Jesus who is our source of joy. Lord, we bring you our offerings of praise, singing, and shouting with ecstatic joy. Your joy is our strength, our refuge, and our stronghold. Who is like your Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? How wonderfully you bless the righteous! Your favor covers us under your canopy of kindness and joy. Father, thank you for anointing us with your oil of endless joy, which is the very fragrance of heaven's gladness. Amen. Today's scripture for confession is Psalm 32, verse 5, which says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The Hebrew word for guilt is avon, which means iniquity, fault, blame, punishment of iniquity, and sin. 
Have you ever struggled with guilt in your life? God's Word says that as we confess our sins, He forgives and carries our guilt. Let's open our hearts and receive His forgiveness. Father, we come before you and confess our sins to you. Thank you for forgiving us and washing away the guilt of our sins. Because you have forgiven us, we choose to forgive and release ourselves from guilt, shame, self-hatred, and self-condemnation. Thank you for surrounding us with joyous shouts and songs of deliverance. Amen. The scripture for intercession is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, which says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The Greek word for overcome is nikau, which means conquer, prevail, subdue, and get the victory. The verb implies a battle. Let's pray for our sons, believing and expecting that God will raise up a generation of overcomers who will reign with Christ. Father, we cry out for our sons and their generation. Illuminate the eyes of their hearts with the light of your revelation, so they will know your original intent of creating them in your image, according to your spiritual likeness in personality and morality. Father, you gave them complete authority so they can rule and reign over all the earth. Give them your grace to know their divine identity Believe in their true authority. Experience your immeasurable greatness of mighty power and possess your glorious inheritance as sons of God. Lord, bless them with holy desire to keep themselves pure by obeying your word and honoring your omnipresence. Holy Spirit, help them to flee from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Guide them so they can remove themselves from every source of temptation. Bless them with divine hunger to pursue truth, righteousness, purity, faithfulness, love, and peace with a company of God-fearing men who have obtained godly character, moral courage, and personal integrity. Lord, you are the creator of heaven and earth and the originator of creativity. Bless our sons with innovative minds, greater levels of creativity, and inventive ideas by your Holy Spirit and divine wisdom, so they will find cures for incurable diseases, capture the sound of heaven's melodies, and invent groundbreaking solutions the world needs in this hour. Bless them with your creative abilities, knowledge, intelligence, wisdom, and divine skills in your artistic craftsmanship, so they will rise up as builders of families, churches, businesses, 
communities, economies, and governments to impact and bring kingdom transformation to this world. Lord, raise them as a holy generation of victorious overcomers who will boldly preach the gospel, courageously represent your true nature, and humbly accomplish your will to bring the reality of your kingdom culture to every sphere of influence on this earth as it is in heaven. We bless them in your holy name. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.